Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. And we speak with Jonathan Golub. He's a Credit Suisse. He writes piercingly detailed sell-side reports on the state of the market, and his state has been a state of optimism for ages. John Golub, what is the tech afternoon of yesterday? What does that signal for America? You know, for the what does it signal for America? I mean, I you know, I'm not sure that it represents the whole economy, but when you're investing in the stock market, you're investing in a basket of 500 or a thousand or however many stocks are in your portfolio, and what it says is the companies that are in the public markets that you invest in in a mutual fund or in your brokerage account, they are in extremely strong shape, um, even though the economic backdrop is much more troubling. So here's what I hear. We've got a lot of smart people saying, sell the tech, move here, hold the tech, move here. Can you make a case this morning that you acquire more shares of these juggernauts? Absolutely, and I don't think that the, the case is because they delivered great earnings yesterday alone. I mean, these companies, if you look at the top five companies, and yesterday we got four of the top five uh, reported, they returned 49% in the last 12 months. The rest of the market delivered zero. But more importantly, these companies have no debt on their balance sheets. They're sitting with cash. They are less volatile than the rest of the market. They're growing. In the last 12 months, they've grown their revenue something like 10 times faster than the rest of the market. The P.E. of these companies relative to their growth rate is half what it is on the market. So they're trading at a premium stock market multiple. They're more expensive, but they're delivering so much faster growth that the P.E. relative to the growth rate is 50 percent of the rest of the market. I think the surprise is going to be that these five or, or seven or however many companies that are leading the market are going to, the, the gap between them and everything else is going to continue to widen. John, you've done some tremendous research on this over the last couple of weeks, and it's all helped me personally. Compare and contrast the top five now to the top five back in 2000. Yeah, well, well, first of all, all five of them are tech today, and, and you had companies like ExxonMobil and, and, and some others in, in, um, back um, at the peak of the, uh, you know, in March of 2000. But the, the companies back then were much faster, I'm sorry, they, they were much more expensive than they are today. Um, they, were, they were less healthy companies. Their earnings growth rates um, were not um, so superior rather, you know, compared to the rest of the market the way these companies are today. They had, they, you know, the, the profile of these companies um, it just is, is, uh, is much stronger. And if I were to say to you that 22% of the market is growing this fast and has these margins and doesn't have any debt, and would you rather be in them? You'd say yes. And then I say, by the way, it's only five companies. People say, well, that sounds a little bit risky. It's only five names. That, that's not the key point. It's how healthy the businesses are. How does it get better than this, I think, is a question some people will be asking this morning relative to the situation we faced in Q2. John, a conversation, rotation on, rotation off. It's a conversation we've had repeatedly over the last several months. Is rotation off again? No, I, I mean I, I think the real I think the real question though is, and I know that you guys have have, have been addressing this. 
the story that has me really concerned is, you know, this, this fall in interest rates is basically the market saying, we don't think there's going to be any, any economic growth over the decade. Forget it. You know, we're going to get a bounce off the bottom. I know it's kind of slowing down and stalling out a little bit, but really the question is, what is the impact of all this over the long run and all the debt that we're accumulating? And it's going to be slower. The, this weakening of this, this bounce is is really problematic for industrial companies and um, mining companies and, and retailers and, and banks. And so you have a chunk of the market, maybe a third of the market, that is really susceptible to some of the economic problems that we're having. And then you have probably about 70% of the market, not just five names, but about 70% of the market that appears to be really healthy. If you look at healthcare names and consumer staples names, um, so you have this is real bifurcation, not only between just the five, but those that are, are super exposed to these economic woes and then everything else, which seems pretty good. When you talk about that 70 percent, they benefit dramatically from the lower interest rates because they can borrow money at record low costs. How much do you expect the trend of borrowing money to buy back shares, to reduce the equity footprint, to shift the capital structure into cheap debt? How much do you expect that to continue? Basically, the privatization of the biggest and strongest companies in America. Yeah, Lisa, I don't think that that's the way that, 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 that things actually play out. I think that what happens is these companies are generating a, a boatload of free cash flow from their businesses, and that's what they're re- returning. So when you talk about the amount that they're buying back and the amount that they maybe pay out in dividends and things like that, it, it's the fact that they're just they're generating more capital than, than they need to run their businesses, and so they spew it back out to, uh, to shareholders. And, and I think... Um, I think that's the that's the big story. John Gallup, I want you the rest to, of the market that can't necessarily do the same. John, I want you to fold in uh, your equity call with the stunning caution I just heard from your colleague James Sweeney. I've known James Sweeney for ages. He's a brilliant economist, and I was thunderstruck earlier this week, whenever it was, over his cautious view forward. Fold that into your optimism on holding equity shares. Listen, I, I, I love James, and I think that his call right now is, is smack on. We have to separate out what is going on in a number of public companies that have a certain type of profile and what's going on in employment markets and the economic data. It's really clear, especially as we move into September and October, that we're going to see some of these brilliant numbers economically that we can have, have bounce. The ISM is bouncing. It'll probably bounce towards 60, and then it's going to roll back down. We're already starting to see this with some of the employment numbers that have stopped improving. And I think that it's, it's the reason that you're seeing interest rates um, slip the way that they are. And I think investors have to kind of separate out when they think about equities are not the economy. They're married to each other or they're, or they're cousins of each other, but, but they're not the same thing. And I, and I think his call's right, which is why I wouldn't be putting money in an industrial stock today and I wouldn't be calling for some kind of a rotation out of the winners. I love James too. Jonathan Golub. A Credit Suisse. Let's get to Troy Gajewski, shall we? Skybridge Capital Co. CIO. Troy, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. How on earth do you make a macro call, softer data, and then make the right market call? Equities higher, credit spreads tighter. 
Yeah, well, obviously, it's very difficult if you were timing the uh, contraction in the economy in February and March. You know, most macro managers had a very difficult time timing the recovery. Um, we'd say, look, the, the trends that were in place before the pandemic have just been exacerbated by it, right? And you alluded to it before that you know, the stock market's become less and less representative of the real economy. And you still have arguably the greatest divergence between real economic outcomes and the stock market, right? And why is that, right? Obviously, big tech is dominating more and more. You know, the top five names in the S&P, you guys had a great article on this yesterday, Have are up 275% since uh, January of 15. The rest of the stock market's up 25%. That's a historic divergence. The other key factor, of course, has been the Fed, right? And their balance sheet, even though it has contracted by about $250 billion the past five weeks as they've taken repo down, it's still up $2.75 right. And so, you know, those two factors, I mean, you know, asset reflation is here. And really, the only way to make money is to be long equities and also be long credit um, and enjoy the, the Fed support. And then you're hoping that the real economy catches up and that there will be another round of stimulus because that is a necessity now in order to keep okay. the economy. Okay, Troy, that's the macro view. I want to know what alternative investments are doing now in the world of Skybridge Capital. Are they under owned or over owned in these glory names? Uh, in general, you know, long short tech funds have been lightening up on big cap tech for the last three months. That's good um, to know. And, yeah, it, well, and the main reason for that is that they're obviously extremely crowded. It's the most crowded trade arguably in history. And there was concern over elevated multiples, uh, given where earnings were expected to be. Now, clearly, the, the strength of their earnings and revenue continues to be exceptionally strong. And so it's really the story of hedge funds for the last 10 years, right? The best trade has been long tech and short nothing. The second best trade has been to be long tech and short everything else. But if you're trying to be an alternative to that, you know, you're positioning yourself to be better than bonds, hopefully compete with high yield and have less downside. But at this point, going not overweight big tech has been a huge problem because they have proven themselves again and again. I go to buy the rumor, buy the news, because they delivered in a big way, beating expectations dramatically. Why not just go into them, given the fact that the biggest risk is regulatory? And based on the hearings that we heard this week, that doesn't seem to be much of a risk. Yeah, we completely agree that, you know, we've, for the last three years, people have been talking about regulatory risk, right? And the thought that that could drive some type of breakup or some type of hyper-regulation, but it just hasn't come to pass. And so, you know, that, that's part of being an investment manager is choosing, you know, what you're trying to achieve. And anybody can own large cap tech for free, basically. So you're trying to provide alternative sources of return that certainly haven't kept up in this raging bull market, particularly for tech but have had the chance to outperform bonds and other asset classes. Troy, what's the cleanest trade on the underlying economy? Well, from our standpoint, the cleanest trade is still long residential mortgage-backed securities because that's very representative of the consumer, very representative of the economy. Spreads are still materially wider than they were in March. You have had some normalization, but certainly not to the same degree. Um, so if the economy continues to, to recover sure. and forbearance requests continue to drop, that's your best way, in our opinion, to play in a real economic balance without having material downside. Well, Troy, reconcile that with what the banks are telling us. JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon basically just told us in the last quarter that the back end of the year, that's when you'll see the recession. We haven't seen the recession yet. How do you reconcile those two things? Well, like he also said in his earnings call, right, what type of recession do you have where you have personal incomes up by 7%? And just like you, Lisa, I'm very interested in the personal income outlay report. And you have home prices up. 
right? So that, that's very different, right? And that's helped keep uh, forbearance requests and delinquencies lower than they would have been otherwise. Obviously, from a banking standpoint, they're going to have to earn their way out of their loan loss reserves. And delinquencies are going up across the board, but it appears that they're going to end up being much lower than people forecast as recently as 10 weeks ago before the full effects of the stimulus were felt. Are we also seeing particular strength in RMBS and residential mortgage-backed securities because wealthier individuals are more likely to own homes that are less affected by this downturn? Yeah, well, there's there's two things going on, right? So in the in the primary residential uh, market, you you had very limited supply coming in, and obviously very good demographics. Troy Gajewski, Skybridge Capital Co. CIO. With us, Seema Shah, uh, Principal Global Investors, and she writes brilliant, brilliant notes, extending out not so much the strategy, but the opportunities, and with it, some caution. Seema, there is the August of our discontent. August is here. How rocky will August be? Hi, Tom. Great to be with you. I think it's going to be really rocky. You know, I, I asked my colleague the other day, when does the summer lull come? It, it doesn't seem like it's coming. There's just too much uh, with the fiscal cliff. You've got the coronavirus cases, most importantly. And then, of course, there's going to be speculation about what the Fed mm -hmm. is going to be doing. The August of all memories is 1998, folks. I remember on the beach the smell of the sweat, and it wasn't the beach and the heat. It was outright fear in August of 1998. Is the financial system steeled for this GDP plunge? Is the financial system steeled uh, with less leverage than what we've seen in other crises? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think the GDP plunge that we saw in Q2, uh, I, don't, I don't think the market's going to have reacted too much to it because it was all priced in. Our concerns are is that, you know, a lot of that momentum has already started to plateau. When we look at the high-frequency data, it's really worrying. And you can see that it's very much tied in with cases. So wherever we look, whatever outlook we may have about monetary policy or even fiscal policy, unfortunately, it's still tied into the health crisis. And until we can find a way of breaking the connection between mobility and cases, uh, then I think we're going to be in a very difficult spot. What's the argument to buy bonds here? Uh, a second wave. I think I think that would have to be your your main reason. Um, at this stage, you know, from what can the Fed really do? And actually, what can most central banks do at this stage? I think their effectiveness is starting to run out, and yet they still have to keep plowing in. So that's going to keep the downward pressure on yields. But also, if we start to see this recovery that we've seen um, start to tail off and actually turn into negative territory, that's not a central scenario, but if you were to see that, then I think that uh, the, the negative space becomes more realistic. One of the big arguments for equities right now is there is, there is no alternative. If you take a look at bonds, you're earning nothing to own them. And yet we have a situation where if we do get a second wave, the economy will sour considerably. Do you see an end to the TINA trade, to the sort of move into equities because yields are so low, if we do get a second wave, or can this continue indefinitely? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So when we've been looking at this, you know, we have, I think I've got a slightly negative outlook on the economy, you know, given concerns around the virus. But with bond yields where they are, you know, we can't really conceivably see equities pushing and hitting their, their previous lows. So in that space, yes, you know, equities is a pretty decent place to be, but you've got to pick your space wisely. And one of the reasons that we have, you know, we've dialed down slightly our exposure to U.S. equities, but it's all been placed in, in mega cap. And we're really comfortable with that story, and we think that's really there to run. Seema, as you're speaking, we're seeing the two-year yield test new lows, one point, excuse me, 0 
I'm sorry, the bond market is speaking, and there seems to be a guarantee of yield curve control. Do you buy it? Do you buy that the central banks can be successfully manipulative, given what the bond market's doing? I think what the central banks are able to do is literally just keep things where they are. You know, in terms of the bond market, it's telling you something. There's concerns out there. Um, but ultimately, what, what would explicit yield curve control, were they going to go down that road, change at this stage? You know, yields are very, very depressed, and it doesn't look like they're going uh, any higher up anytime soon. You know, that's the big difference between now and 10 years ago, Tom. The last time we took Fed funds rate down to zero, Tom, everybody thought that in the next couple of years, rates would start climbing again. Yeah. It wasn't until 2011 that the two-year yield actually bottomed out. And that, for me, is the important difference between now and back then, that we believe in well, the Federal Reserve now, and we believe that they're not going anywhere for a long, long time. Do you know where the two-year yield was at the back end of 2018, Tom? 3%. Um, yeah, okay. 3%. Well, here's, here's John. You know, as we have the Exxon headline here on the Bloomberg right now, folks, and John, go to SEMA on this. The 10-year tip, negative 1.0034. John, that is so important. You can do the real yield this afternoon. I'm looking forward to that, Tom. Thank you. SEMA, <laughs> inflation expectations drifting a little bit higher. It's part of the story as to why negative yields, negative real yields have become that more dominant in the last couple of weeks. What's behind the higher inflation expectations? I think it's difficult to say. I mean, I think one of the things is, is that, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there who do believe within about two to three years, um, the effect of all of this monetary policy, this fiscal spending will eventually play fruit, pay fruit, and you'll start to see inflation picking up, as well as all of the structural reasons around supply chain, deglobalization, etc. Um, now, when we think about this, you know, what, are we talking about inflation of more than 3%? Absolutely not, because ultimately it's going to take a really long time for the economy to get back on its feet and to reach its pre-COVID levels. So, yes, we could see inflation returning to some, some reality, but certainly not the kind of levels that maybe some people in the market have fears over. Seema, looking at this bond market right now, how on earth do you buy the banks? Uh, you know, it, it's a difficult one. I have to say we are not, we're not big fans of financial this, at this point. We still think the trade for these Zurich equities has to be in the tech space. You know, where is the secular growth coming from? It's not from many places, but you are seeing it in technology and you're seeing it in makeups. But with yield curves so flat, so low, where can it play through for financials? So I have to say, from, from my perspective, from an asset allocation exposure, uh, financials doesn't really feature at this stage. Seema, meanwhile, it's Friday, and today is the day when the enhanced unemployment benefits run out if there is not an extension that's passed. And we get data out today, ancient history, June uh, personal income and spending data, and it shows the results of the enhanced jobless benefits, the idea that personal income dropped 1.1%, personal spending rose 5.6%, people getting money that they can spend from the government. How big a hit to the U.S. equity market will it be if there is not some sort of extension passed today? I don't think it's been priced in sufficiently by the market by any means. I think it can be catastrophic. You know, if you look at the, the upturn in spending over the last two months or so, it, a lot of it has been driven by the fact that there's been so much fiscal help coming through. If you start to take that away, not only are you dealing with uh, a coronavirus, which is already suppressing um, a lot of the activity and increasing anxiety, and then you're taking away the ability of people to go out and spend. So I think this is, this is something that, of course, Congress must be taking note of and thinking they have to resolve this as quickly as possible. And Tom, noticing that the personal savings rate is 19 percent, and this goes to the narrative that there's a huge wall of cash just sitting in people's ba well, bank accounts, <clears throat> looking to spend as soon as they get a sense that the economy is stabilizing. Seema, do you buy that? 
you know, I think I think what we have seen. So I think there's a couple of things at, at play here. Over the last two months, you've had, as I said, you see the the, the, the paychecks, the income checks have come in that have helped. But also, there's been a lot of pent up demand which has been used up, and those are your easy wins. But unfortunately, a lot of that savings rate, people have to be sitting out there wondering that maybe they have a job to go back to today. But is that going to be true in six months' time if we've still got the same kind of challenges going ahead? So actually, I think savings is going to stay high. I think spending has been satiated to some extent. Um, so this is going to be a very, very challenging uh, time into the second half of the year. John Farrow, we can close the loop. The personal savings rate at 19%, which that means a few iPhones were bought. Well, that's the truth, Tom, <clears throat> around the fiscal plan. Seema, the Federal Reserve divorced financial conditions from the underlying economy and Congress essentially insulated personal income from the job losses. So how on earth going forward do you have any kind of calculation on what the economy is going to do for the back end of this year and what it means for the market? So we are a little bit negative for Q3. It seems like a lot of it is turning over and there has to be some concerns around the coronavirus uh, and the way that people are going to go out and spend from here. So we have got major concerns there. In terms of how does the equity market respond, you know, traditionally maybe you'd expect uh, markets to fall pretty significantly on these kind of uh, concerns going ahead. But as long as you have the Fed standing behind the market, it's difficult to see the market retesting its previous lows. And we have to make the assumption that the Congress steps up and provides all the money that is required. Uh, without that, then I think you have a very different scenario, but I think we have to see that they, that they do the right thing. Still everyone's assumption right now that they will do the right thing. We hope they do. Seema Shah of Principal Global Investors, thank you. With Matthew Bloxham earlier, we did the view from 60,000 feet on technology, the cosmic realities that Tim Cook and others have to deal with. Now we look at the nuts and bolts, the, the, the absolute reality and adjustment needed after the miracle that was witnessed yesterday. Daniel Lives of Wedbush has absolutely nailed the tech enthusiasm. He's frankly been a pinata on it. The Gloom crew has repeatedly uh, gone after him as well, and we're thrilled that Dan Ives could join us in Wedbush. Bush this morning. Dan Ives, your new price target gets us out to Apple near four, near two trillion dollars. Is Apple going to be a two trillion dollar company in a number of quarters? I think by the end of this year, December thirty first, it's a two trillion dollar mark cap. I mean, if you look going into the iPhone twelve product cycle, which <clears> I think is a super cycle, and these numbers, that's the one two punch, and I still <clears> see right. the stock middle innings. Dan, very importantly here, the persistency of all that we saw, the persistency on the income statement, the persistency of free cash flow, to me the foundational thing underneath the news yesterday was a stunning growth of the Mac component and the iPad component. Nobody saw that coming. What does that signal for the next few quarters? I mean, that just shows this work from home. That's just another tale in that they were seeing the street was not factoring in. Combined with a $4 billion iPhone deed in China, right now this is something where if you're a bull in the story, this is never even on the spectrum in terms of the types of numbers we saw last night. A jaw dropper, uh, absolutely. Uh, Dan, good morning. Are, are these companies now at risk of a breakup? Because they're, they're so powerful and they're doing so well. Well, I think for them it's better they did the tech hearings the day before they reported than the day after. <laughs> and, I, I mean, look, with that said, look, for now, 
we think unless there's a legislative fix, it's it's most likely fines rather than a, a breakup or a business model tweak. This will gain momentum into the fall. But for right now, in terms of in, from an investor perspective, the streets viewing it more as background noise. And right now, that digesting these numbers, I think that's a contained risk. What about higher taxation if you have a new administration in the U.S.? Yeah, and that's possible. And depending on you know if it goes blue or red, you know, whether it's Senate or, or presidential. But I think for right now, investors, whether it's taxation or fines. Remember, a lot of these companies, they're generating more cash in some countries. Uh, so, so that's not the issue. It's more about the business model changes, and we don't think that that right now is in play. Dan, I want to talk about the cash. They're obviously bringing the cash down from the lofty levels before. If they go from X gazillion dollars of cash down to 80 gazillion, wherever they are now, what's the dynamic forward? Do they extend more debt? To buy back shares, are you suggesting that they're pushing aside the idea of a, a ginormous acquisition? What does it signal that there's a lesser, lesser ample cash? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say right now, the one thing from the antitrust and obviously the target on their back, both in the Beltway as well as in the EU, is I think you'll see M&A slow down because everything's going to get a second, third look, and you're seeing that across the board. You'll see more toward buybacks. You will continue to see them take out debt, um, you know, just given what they could do in the balance sheet. And that's something from an investor perspective that they want to see. Right now, they, <clears throat> the stronger getting stronger. And if you look at these right. numbers, you know, numbers continue to go higher. If they can defend 38% and the tenth of a decimal point of the margin expansion, which has surprised everyone, do they have the price elasticity against unit growth to do that? What is the persistency of that expanding margin if they have to defend the unit growth? Well, and that's going to be the question, especially as we go into iPhone 12, and in light of what we're seeing from a consumer environment. I think they could defend it, but also I think you'll see lower price points, you know, in terms of sub-1,000 on iPhones, because right now it's about demand and defending their moat, especially in China. In China, that was the headline for Apple in terms of China, that rebound that we're seeing there, just really a table pounder in terms of uh, what we're seeing from China in the Apple story. Yeah, I was going to ask you actually, actually uh, Dan, about Apple and China. Are they, are they going to have serious, you know, concerns of, of selling in China if the trade war escalates? Look, and that's been the issue, especially over the last year, where there are worries they'd be burning iPhones in the streets of Beijing, and instead they were actually going into the iPhone stores and buying them. And I think what you're seeing is it's 20% of iPhone sales that are going to be from China. That was up. Three, four hundred bips higher than anyone thought in terms of these numbers. And this is now the drum roll into what I believe is our strongest product cycle right. since 2014. Dan, I want to give you a 60,000 foot question. I want to flip it over to Amazon. Now, you don't cover Amazon. I mean, I, I, I get that. But I, I'm fascinated by Francine sees it on Instagram, Francine searches it on Google. Francine buys it off her iPhone and gets it in a cardboard box from Amazon. Tim Cook said yesterday this is not a zero-sum game where he's stealing for dollar for dollar from bricks and mortar in traditional retail America. Do you buy that, that there's actually an expansion of society and the good of society from this exercise? 
I think if you look, everything we're seeing in this pandemic and even look at these numbers, it's really food, water, and fang names in terms of the average consumer. And, and I think the stronger getting stronger as we're seeing, and I think that's something where that does become an issue, obviously, um, as as we see from an antitrust perspective. Okay. But the one thing mm. we're seeing is that that's, it's a double-edged sword, and we're seeing investors like it, but regulators will be focused on it. You raise your price target to 475 Cut to the chase. What's the sum of the parts? If they have to go all Ida Tarbell and break up like Standard Oil just to take Apple, I mean, how close is some of the parts to your new price target, 475 Yeah, at 475 new bull case, 550 550 and, and to put $5.50 for bull case. And if I kind of break that down, I believe the services business right now is worth potentially seven to $800 billion. And then you look at the core iconic iPhone hardware business, that could be worth $1.5 trillion. So you put that together, you know, I think this is a $2 trillion mm-hmm. stock by the end of the year. Okay, unless, what could derail that? Is there one thing, done that you worry about them? The main thing that could derail it is the supply chain continues to see major issues. iPhone 12 pushed out, you know, further, even past holiday season. But at that point, that looks like a very Damn. negligible chance to happen. Why do, we, why do we need a new toy? I mean, let me speak for my children right now. They all just got new toys. When does the gravy train end that everybody needs an iPhone 12, 13, or 14? Yeah, and really the number that, that I think dictates why you own the stock, 350 million of 950 million iPhones have not upgraded their phones in three and a half years. That's the super cycle going into what's going to be 5G. And if you look in the U.S. as well as in China, remember 96% buy a new iPhone that already have one. And that continues to be why that's a golden brand that Cook and Cupertino have built. Smart conversation. Dan Ives, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.